It's traditional at the beginning of every Buddhist teaching and really at the beginning of all Buddhist practice to go for refuge. And refuge is the topic of these four classes. Um, and in, um, in various systems of Buddhism, they have different poems or kind of traditional chants that they use to, to go for a refuge. To, uh, you know, a refuge prayer. We have an example of that over here on the, on the wall to my right, where at the top it says taking refuge. I take refuge in awakening. I take refuge in the path of awakening. I take refuge in my companions on the path of awakening. That is very succinct. It's helpful that it's in our language because sometimes you'll go to Buddhist classes and you will chant some syllables in a language you don't know and don't really understand. Um, so it's nice that we have the opportunity, the ability to um, have these things in our own language um, because we are in, of course, a process of cultural transition as Buddhism um, comes to the West and we're in the first one or two or maybe three generations of Western Buddhists. So again, while, I, while my training is largely in the Tibetan philosophy, the Tibetan approach to Buddhism, I'm teaching this, I'm sharing this in, in our own language because of my teachers and my teacher's teachers who have spent many hours um, studying Tibetan language and translating Tibetan texts into English and explaining them to us in English. So we're kind of on the cusp between, you know, traditional Buddhism from its own, from the cultures that it's coming from and American Buddhism whatever that's going to look like as it emerges in the West. So rather than share with you a Tibetan chant uh, of a refuge prayer, I find it helpful to um, kind of cultivate the state of mind of what refuge is and what the, the purpose of refuge is. Because refuge is kind of a weird word, like, you know, what is refuge really? And, you know, refuge means shelter or protection or safety. And so in Dharma teachings, um, you know, they, they break it out into sort of conventional refuge and ultimate refuge. And conventional refuge are all the different ways that we seek shelter in our daily life, which is like our job and having enough money in the bank account and that our car is in good mechanical condition and that we have health insurance maybe and that if we get into legal trouble, we can like call the police, or if our house catches on fire, we can call the fire department. These are all the different kinds of conventional ways that we go for refuge. But these things are not really reliable because sometimes your house catches on fire and the fire department's not available. Sometimes you get into trouble and the police aren't available. Sometimes there's not enough money in your bank account. Sometimes the insurance company decides not to cover the thing that you need. And that's in Buddhist philosophy, that's what proves that these things are unreliable forms of shelter, that they're not, they're not true shelter, they're not true protection, because sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. So the, in Buddhist philosophy, they, we go for refuge, we go for protection, we, we seek shelter with what are called the three jewels, which in Sanskrit are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And rather than simply, I mean, traditionally we put our hands into a prayer mudra and pray that we're going for shelter to these things. 
I, I think it's helpful to think about what it means, what it means to me, how I think that these things can help me. And so that's what I would like to do right now together. Um, going for refuge to the Buddha. The Buddha is an enlightened being. Um, historically, Siddhartha Gautama is a human being who in our world applied practices, um, was diligent in meditation, and had a kind of fundamental shift in his consciousness that allowed him to get out of the trap of continual suffering, continual discomfort. And so going for refuge, we have images on the wall of all different kinds of Buddhas. In fact, there's one of Siddhartha Gautama right over there. Um, that's a, a, an illustration of the historical Buddha. What we're really going for shelter to, what we're really seeking protection in, is the idea that we are perfectible that our consciousness is on a path of cosmic evolution, that we will attain states of consciousness that are not limited by physicality, that are not limited by selfishness and divisiveness and competitiveness and the feeling that there's like me and there's the other and I have to make sure that I'm okay and the other, who cares what happens to them, frankly but that we're going to evolve beyond that state of mind and that we will be able to see all beings as aspects of our own self and that we will have a mind that is perfectly compassionate and perfectly loving and perfectly omniscient that can perceive all things simultaneously independent of time or perspective. So when we go for refuge to the Buddha, we're really setting an affirmation for ourselves that there's an alternative to being a suffering schmuck, and that provides tremendous source of hope and a tremendous sense of optimism. And the second of the three jewels is the Dharma. And the Dharma are the techniques, the practices, the the things that we can do, the way that we can structure our life, the, um, the daily components of a happy life are an example of a set of Dharma teachings that when put into practice, please pass this around, that when put into practice are going to accelerate that the evolutionary process to that state of mind, which is Buddhahood. This is like the, the, the daily components of, the ha of a happy life are like stage one, like we're getting the car on the track and like learning how to operate the machine, learning how to shift the gears, learning how to use the pedals, learning how to steer. We're getting familiar with what it looks like to be putting our mind away from the evolutionary trajectory of more suffering and more suffering and death, birth, which is uh, an uncomfortable process to go through. These are the four, you know, main forms of suffering, birth, old age, sickness, and death. And that we're setting our minds on a, on a trajectory that can take us out of the inevitability 
of those things. And so we go for refuge in the Dharma because there are people who have put these things into practice and changed the way that their consciousness functions. And they're no longer subject to suffering. They're no longer subject to the, the constant process of death and rebirth, which is one of the assertions of the Buddhist worldview is that we're not limited by our own body, that we are in a mind stream that is basically infinite in both directions until we learn how to interrupt the process of old age and death and to put our mind into a, a state that transcends the process of samsara. And the third thing that we go for refuge to is the sangha. And the sangha means different things in different contexts. One, one interpretation of the sangha is that it's not just Siddhartha Gautama, but that many people have put this into practice, the, that, that the techniques of the Dharma work to produce enlightened beings. And so the Sangha, in the biggest sense, is that there are a community of enlightened beings who are helping us in invisible ways that we can't necessarily see or perceive with our ordinary senses. And in a more immediate sense, in a more practical sense. The Sangha is other people who we know personally in our lives, in our world, who are putting these things in our, into practice. People who are trying to be kind and compassionate and loving and to take care of others as much as they are take, taking care of themselves. People who, for example, come to a Dharma center on a Thursday night instead of hanging out and watching Netflix or going to the bar so that they can think about something more important, something more valuable, something that is potentially transformative. And so in a very immediate sense, the Sangha are the people in this room. And, and really all the people who make Sky Creek Dharma Center happen, all the people who come here on every night of the week to meditate, and all of the different teachers who do their best to, to share their understanding of the Dharma with us. So. We go for refuge to the Buddha, the potential for enlightenment, the Dharma, the, the path, the techniques for enlightenment, and the Sangha, the support network that we have with our friends and family who are helping it make it, make it possible for us to practice the Dharma and achieve, eventually achieve Buddhahood. Maybe not in this lifetime, but we'll get there. And then the other thing that it's traditional to do is to set our motivation, which is to think about why we're really here and to um, really put our mind in the highest possible state for studying and practicing Dharma, for putting Dharma into, into effect in our lives. And this is um, called the, the Bodhisattva wish or the bod and uh, the Bodhicitta wish which is to become a bodhisattva. This is all technical Sanskrit stuff. So forgive me for being jargony, but it's a fairly technical academic class. So I'll mention that stuff and then try to, to the best of my ability, explain what it means. And that's really, what it really means is altruism. Um, that we're doing this not just to fix our own problems, but really we're doing this to help all suffering beings. And that's very important because 
in order to get the momentum, in order to get the, the spiritual momentum, the karmic momentum, to make major breakthroughs in our consciousness, to make major leaps in cosmic evolution, we need to understand that we have to want it more for others than we want it for ourselves in order to achieve it. And the last class was all on that subject, the subject of bodhicitta and the bodhisattva momentum, the bodhisattva worldview. So I'm not going to go a whole lot into it right now. There's, you know, as you can imagine, there's a huge amount of ideas and concepts and, and explanations of Buddhist philosophy being a you know, 2,500, 3,000-year-old philosophy with major innovators and, and many people who have put these things into pr practice. So there's more to discuss than we have time for in our lifetimes, really. But um, the shorthand is that we do this not for fame or for wealth, which Dharma teaching is not really a great way to get fame or wealth. There are better ways, but apparently in the old days in Buddhist societies, um, fame or wealth was a, uh, was a possibility as a Dharma teacher. Um, but we're essentially setting our motivation that we are doing this really to benefit ourselves and others. So the topic of the session tonight, oh, and um, I should let you know that I'll, I'll talk for another 30 or 40 minutes, then we'll take a break for refreshments, then we'll come back and we'll meditate together for 20, 25 minutes, and then there'll be time for um, discussion and question and answer at the end, just so you know what to expect. Um, I, I like to know what the structure of the class is going to be ahead of time, so I just want to mention that to you now. Uh, I'm not just going to talk for two solid hours. <laughs> That's, I'm trying to remove your fear of that possibility. So um, the definition of nirvana, we are, um, your handout has um, an outline, which are the, the main points that I'll cover, and then the daily components of a happy life, and then two pages of um, reading, or a page and a quarter of reading. And so the, the reading is the source material. This is from a text called The Analysis of the Perfection of Wisdom, written by Kedrup Tenpa Dargye, who lived from 1493 to 1568. Um, this is to um, show you that this comes from a lineage of teachings um, that there's a, a, a historical tradition of practicing this material and that the things that I'm outlining are, that are in the outline that I'll talk about are all um, in the text as well. So I hope that you will take the handout home with you and that you'll read these things uh, on your own time and um, become familiar with these ideas because they really are practical. You can put them into, you can put this into um, effect in your life. So, according to K. 
Kedrup Tempa Dargye. The definition of nirvana is the permanent cessation in which one has eliminated the mental affliction obstacles in their entirety due to one's individual analysis. Um, the Tibetan Buddhists, especially the Gelukpa, are a big fan, they're big fans of, of an academic approach. They have lots of these technical explanations, they have lots of um, lists. My teacher sometimes calls it list Buddhism. There's different styles of Buddhism, and the Gelukpas are list Buddhists. Um, as you can tell by this outline, definitely lists going on here. And um, so the, the, the thing is, this is uh, a rather dense statement that we can break down and go into a little more detail with. A per the permanent cessation in which one has eliminated the mental affliction obstacles in their entirety due to one's individual analysis. A cessation, to break through down some of the technical terms that are in this uh, definition, a cessation refers to a, a major shift in one's consciousness, in one's subconscious, in the way that the mind is functioning on kind of a basic level, in which a wrong way of doing things is stopped. So while we hear of um, terms like attainments, with, uh, like attaining of, Buddha, of Buddhahood, which makes it sound like if you collect enough of something, you'll like have a big enough heap and then you'll like attain Buddhahood. But actually the major spiritual transitions, the major, uh, the major shifts in our cosmic evolution are actually a stopping of doing something wrongly, of perceiving the world wrongly. And as such, all we really have to do is realize that we're holding the burning coal recognize that we're holding the burning coal and then stop burning the stop holding the burning coal and then the burning stops um, it's not like we have to necessarily extinguish the burning we just have to realize that the burning is coming from the holding of the coal and then the stopping of the burning holding of the burning coal and the word nirvana in Sanskrit, uh, nirvana is a Sanskrit term, and nirvana means, nir is a negation, or it means um, out, and vana means to blow. So the technical, literal definition of nirvana means to blow out. And in the kind of earlier Western academic um, presentation of nirvana, um, there, it, the assumption was that we're trying to blow out consciousness and, see, and some kind, somehow achieve some sort of state of non-existence. But um, the, what we're really blowing out is the mental afflictions, the negative emotions that are controlling our lives through habit and reactivity So the cessation is of the mental affliction obstacles. Um, this is any movement of the mind that disturbs our perfect peace, our perfect tranquility. So um, I don't know. I don't know about you, but for me that happens about sixty times a second. I'm just estimating. 
Um, it's not like it's just something that happens once in a while. It's not like it's just something that happens when somebody cuts us off in traffic or we stub our toe and there's pain or some overt, you know, overt suffering. But it's, it's that there's always something a little out of place. There's always something that's uncomfortable or whenever you check in, there's always something that's just not quite right. And, and these, are the, these are the mental afflictions that were always in a state of, in Sanskrit, um, dukkha, discontent, you know? It's like the, the discontent and discomfort that's happening all the time. And so the big ones are like birth and old age and sickness and death. Those are the classical four. But, you know, it's like that suffering is that when you're hungry, is that you're hungry, and then you go out and get food, and then you eat food until you're too full, and then you're suffering. The thing that's relieved the suffering then becomes the new suffering. But then a couple of hours later, you start to get peckish, and you start thinking about the next meal. It's just like moment to moment. The permanent cessation of mental affliction obstacles in their entirety, so there is none left, due to one's individual analysis. Individual analysis refers to the cultivation of wisdom. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit more um, further in the class. but. Um, these are summarized in what are called the Four Arya Truths, sometimes called the Four Noble Truths, um, which are the main exposition that uh, historical Buddha Siddhartha Gautama formed the basis of his teachings around when he achieved total enlightenment, total nirvana, and um, started to share his experiences and share his techniques with the, um, with the world to try to help people. Um, and the four Arya truths are, first of all, that suffering is pervasive, um, that the unexamined life is suffering. This is summed up by saying life is suffering, but that's kind of, that's a little melodramatic. Um, it's not that life is suffering full stop. It's that there's, always, that there's this pervasive discontent and that a life that's not meaningful is more or less a wasted life. Um, the second of the four Arya truths is that suffering is caused. And this is good news because it means that it's not permanent. It means that it's changing. It means that it's changeable. And the cause of suffering is our own misperception of how reality works. We think we understand how reality works, which is why we're constantly striving after things. And, you know, we think reality works because it's like the, um, the job gets the money, which gets the gasoline, which gets the, which is what makes the car run, and the car is what gets us to the ice cream parlor, which is, and then we have the money again to get the ice cream, and then the ice cream is a pleasurable thing. Um, 
And that, like, that kind of like way of thinking that if I just like get all of the pieces organized right, then I'm gonna be okay. If I can like get the thing perfectly balanced, if I can get the scales balanced, that it's like that's how I get happiness. That that wrong way of seeing the world, that wrong way of thinking that's how we get our needs met, is the cause of suffering. The third Arya truth is that there's an alternative. So the news keeps getting better. It starts kind of with the bad news, and then like the news gets better as we go through the Arya truths. There's an alternative. Um, it's not because it's a changeable thing, because suffering is changeable, because suffering is caused, because that means it's not permanent. That means that there's an alternative. And the fourth of the four area truths is that there's a path to the alternative. There's some, there are things that we can do that will get us on the right track. Daily components of a happy life, exhibit A. The permanent cessation, we stop doing it for good. Having mental affliction obstacles, anything that disturbs our perfect, equanimous, peace of mind, full of love and compassion and joy, which we achieve due to our individual analysis, realizing that we're going to continue to suffer unless we realize that there's an alternative and start to apply the the path to reach the alternative. There's the definition of nirvana for you. Um, moving to the next section, the four types of nirvana. Um, these aren't really four types of nirvana. These are four different ways of looking at the same thing. These are four different aspects of the same thing. We're getting into pretty technical definitions of Buddhism. This is like, we're like, in graduate school now. We're looking at like the real nitty-gritty details about how the technical application of the Dharma leads us to specific predictable results. This is the this is the magical technology of producing enlightenment. This is the good stuff. Um, okay, natural nirvana. That sounds really nice. Um, uh, what natural nirvana refers to is that all beings have equally the potential, the capacity, and really the inevitable result of achieving nirvana, of permanently eliminating mental afflictions in their mind stream. Um, this is... Um, also called Buddha nature in uh, another Buddhist kind of terminology. Buddha nature is the, is the fact that all beings equally have the capacity to become a Buddha, to um, transform the mind, their way, the way that their mind works. It's the inherent potentiality for Buddhahood. And so this is good news because it means that nobody's not on the right track, basically. We, 
you know, maybe are, maybe aren't uh, in our next lifetime going to have a favorable or unfavorable rebirth. Um, but it means that the capacity for Buddhahood is something that all beings have, that without exception, from ants and termites up to human beings. I mean, even if you look around, not all beings have the capacity to achieve Buddhahood in a single lifetime. Um, it takes very special qualities of, of a life to be able to put into place the proper momentum to shift one's mind stream, to shift one's consciousness in a permanent way to be in this state of nirvana that we're describing. Creatures like insects and animals don't have sufficient, according to the Buddhist philosophy, um, don't have the sufficient intelligence to develop the wisdom of understanding how reality works in order to make that kind of progress in one lifetime. And frankly, most humans don't really have that capacity. If you look around the earth, you know, many, many if not most people are struggling for, to get their basic needs met. They don't have time to, to, to um, commit to studying the Dharma, to meditating. They don't have enough resources to really practice generosity in any major way. They're like struggling to get enough food or enough water. Or they don't know how to read, you know? Or they live in a, a war zone or a climate where there's not, where they barely have enough resources. Um, people like us are in a different category. Um, the fact that we even have the time and interest to come to a Dharma center on a Thursday evening and spend some time learning about these things and thinking about these things indicates that we have a massive store of good karma. We, our momentum, we already have a huge head of steam on the on the cosmic evolutionary path, on the path to enlightenment, on the spiritual path. I mean, we wouldn't, you wouldn't even be interested in these things if you hadn't already spent many lifetimes studying and practicing these things, putting in the time for spiritual hardships. You wouldn't have the kind of money that you have if you hadn't practiced incredible generosity in previous lives. You wouldn't have the kind of health and vitality if you hadn't taken care of the well-being of other beings. Just by, this is not a class on karma, so I don't, I'm not gonna go into the technicalities of how and why this works. But the fact that you're in this room, that you care about these things, that you have the time and the resources to practice these things, means you're already very much on a path of spiritual development, very much on a path of, of, of spiritual cultivation. So all beings have natural nirvana or Buddha nature, but some beings, it's right, it's within their grasp. And so that's a little pep talk. You know, when you're practicing your morning lull, 
2A on the daily components of a happy life. How many things are going well in your life? Like one of those things is that you, you're close. You're really close to nirvana. You, you must be. This could, you couldn't stumble into something like this. It can't happen um, according to the way that the laws of karma are working. So um, nirvana with something left over Nirvana with nothing left over are two different phases of one's final lifetime. Moving on to the next topic. Um, nirvana, so Nirvana, what's going to happen is in that last lifetime, which may be this one, maybe the next one, maybe it's the next seven or 15 or 25, on a cosmic timeline, a couple of lifetimes is, not, is a drop in the bucket. One lifetime is like a blink of the eye, you know? So don't get too attached to your uh, self-image because it doesn't last very long on a cosmic scope of time. Uh, but in that last lifetime, in a state of deep meditation, there's going to be a fundamental shift in the way that your consciousness works. And your sense of self, your sense of I, say, your, your, uh, your sense of what is me shifts from being a particular body and mind to being the entire cosmos. All beings in all of the galaxies, independent of, in, in all time. Buddhas have three eyes because they can see past, present, and future. But what that means is they step out of the linear perception of time and they're able to perceive all time as if it's part of their immediate visceral self-identity. And this can happen to you in, in meditation. And uh, at some point it will happen to you. Maybe not you say your names to yourself, but at some point in your mind stream, at some point in your cosmic evolution, it will happen. Um, and you have this experience, which is sometimes called the direct perception of emptiness, the direct perception of ultimate reality, cosmic consciousness. Um, in other religious systems, they call it meeting Jesus, merging with the Tao, etc. Um, and your sense of self completely dissolves. There is no me-other relationship. There's only I, which perceives all things. Um, but the karma that created your current body has not run out yet. So you come out of that meditation state and you return to your present body with your self-other dualistic delusion. And at that point you have nirvana with something left over. You have achieved the state of nirvana. That's your last lifetime. But you have to finish going through the karma of the current life, which has already been initiated by your birth. So you are, you're perceiving the world from a nirvanic point of view. The mental affliction obstacles have completely ceased, but you still perceive yourself as having a body. Then we move on to nirvana with nothing left over. When the karma for that body runs out, and you die or something, um, your, your 
you go permanently into that state of nirvana without um, having the physical, without needing the physical support of a body. So as I mentioned, this is all very technical stuff. If this is all too woo-woo, just bear with me. Um, and then next is the nirvana, which does not stay in the extreme of samsara nor the extreme of peace. Um, this is the full. This is the state of full Buddhahood, um, which is what we've been describing as nirvana throughout this class. Um, but it is interesting to mention here the the extreme of peace. The extreme of samsara is what we're doing now. Uh, what I'm doing now. I don't know about you. I can't read your mind, so I don't know. For all I know, you're all Buddhas and you just show up to give me an opportunity to say these things. One of my teachers once told me that um, the best way to learn the Dharma is to teach the Dharma because if you hear yourself saying these things, at that point you'll really believe it. Because when you hear other people say it, you're like, eh, maybe, maybe not. But when you hear yourself say it, you're like, it must be true, right? I'm saying it. So. This is a very good logical argument for that you're all Buddhas and you just show up so that I have an opportunity to like stoke my own ego by teaching the Dharma, which is actually just here to ripen my own karma, accelerate my own spiritual progress. So if that's the case, thank you. <laughs> um, but the extreme of peace is interesting because this is the, um, the notion that there are nirvana-like states that can be achieved through advanced meditation on the wrong kinds of objects. So this is like meditating on nothing in particular, or only meditating on the breath, or meditating that's just kind of like a spacing out. Um, they're desirable states because they're very pleasant. It's like they sometimes call it a, a, a private nirvana or a personal nirvana. And so you're reincarnated in a space that's kind of like this nihilistic, blissful, like you're in one of those sensory deprivation chambers for a million years or something, and like nobody's there to irritate you, no, you don't have to talk to anybody, you don't have to go anywhere, you don't have to do anything, you're just like chill. And you, you maybe even you think you're in nirvana, you're like, yes, I've got it, you know, I'm like, I'm totally chillaxed. But that is caused and because it's caused, things that are caused, they arise, they last for a little while, and then they go away. Or sometimes a long while. Maybe they last for eons. Um, and so this extreme of peace is this kind of like spaced out, private, peaceful realm. They're called in Buddhist technical terminology the form realm or the formless realm, uh, if you've heard those ideas before. Um, they are aspects of the god realm. But that's a little beyond the scope of this class. I just want to mention that because it's interesting to know that it's possible to become an advanced practitioner and then you know, fire your consciousness into a state that's not full enlightenment but might feel subjectively like enlightenment. Um, so it is possible to kind of screw it up. Um, <laughs> The three main parts of the method for achieving nirvana, this is the good stuff. Because this is how we do it. Mastering the extraordinary training of wisdom. Um, my next class, which will be in five weeks, I think, from now, the second Thursday of October, 
um, will be really focused on this class, the extraordinary training of wisdom. Um, wisdom m means um, learning to understand how reality is working, how objects appear to us, and what we currently what we currently believe, what I currently believe, is that, uh, and, and I'm not saying like belief like uh, this is my opinion, but the way that I immediately overlay reality onto sense data is that the objects are self-existent, that there's a, there's a, essentially there's a world out there that I'm kind of wandering through and like I encounter things that are out there just waiting for me. And Wisdom, the extraordinary training of wisdom, is learning how to understand that it's completely perspectival. That what is creating reality, the way that we experience it on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, is the habits of perception that, are, that I'm overlaying onto them. This is what's called emptiness in Buddhism, or voidness. And emptiness means that the things that I perceive are empty of the characteristics that I perceive as self-existent. They are void of the things, people, phenomena are void of the characteristics that I'm perceiving in them. The characteristics that I'm perceiving in the things, people, phenomena are in fact characteristics of my perspective not characteristics of the things that I'm perceiving. We constantly think that the things that I'm perceiving are the way that they are because they're inherently that way, from their own side, independently, self-existently, and we're not aware of the fact that they are the way that they are because of the way that I perceive them to be. And the, uh, so mastering, we're not just talking about wisdom, but we're talking about mastering the extraordinary training of wisdom. There's a lot of, you know, gusto in that, in that phrase. Um, because initially we have to familiarize ourselves with the intellectual, logical proofs for why this is. Which is a lot of work in itself. And then once we have familiarized ourselves with how the way I'm perceiving the world cannot be the way that it really is, then we can really meditate on that, meditate on the lack of self-existence to people, things, phenomena, and develop a really strong internal felt experience of how that really is the way that the universe is working. And that's what gets us to the point up to the edge where our consciousness can toggle over into that non-dual direct perception of ultimate reality, the non-dual state of ultimate, ultimate reality. And so we have um, techniques that help us along this path. 
Um, and these are the tra um, assuring the training in wisdom is imbued with a mastery of the first two extraordinary trainings. So there are three extraordinary trainings. Wisdom is the third of the three extraordinary trainings. It's a progression, right? You master the first two extraordinary trainings in order to get to the third extraordinary training. So even though here in this class the outline starts with mastering the extraordinary training of wisdom, really the extraordinary training of wisdom is the third stage. We master the extraordinary trainings in morality and in meditative concentration. So, morality, um, on the daily components of a happy life, under number five, I've said, keep track of your moral life all day long. Did I hurt someone physically? Did I steal? Did I hurt anyone with my sexuality? Did I lie? Did I speak divisively? Did I speak harshly? Did I gossip? Was I unhappy when someone else got something good? Was I happy when someone else got something bad? Did I act or think ignorantly in any way? These are, um, these are the five, these are the ten, there's ten here on the list, not five. These are the ten main, um, the ten main points of morality that we want to watch on a daily basis. And essentially, they all are summed up in one thing, which is don't hurt other people. But mastering the extraordinary training in morality not only starts with not harming other people, but it goes on to want to help others in a, in a major way. And that's the um, bodhi, bodhicitta, the wish for the bodhisattva wish that I mentioned in the beginning. And here's why. Because, because the things that I perceive are a quality of my perception. If I change my perception, then I change the outer world. So I don't actually have to work on the outer world, I have to work on myself. If I want to see a change in the outer world, I have to see that change in myself first. So if I want to live in a world of ultimate peace, of ultimate love, of ultimate compassion, I have to put those things into practice. I have to put them into practice with total equanimity, with, with all people, people I like, people I don't like, people I feel neutral about. And so morality really isn't just about like being nice to other people. It's a, it's a systematic technological approach to transforming my world into a paradise by behaving in the way that I want others to behave. I want others to stop killing. I have to make sure that I never ever harm another being with my body, with my speech, or with my mind. This is broken into three segments here. The first three um, hurt someone physically steal or hurt someone with my sexuality, those are um, stopping harming people with my physical actions. The next four are stopping harming people with my speech. The last three are stopping harming people in my thoughts with what I'm doing in my mind, craving, wanting what other people have, um, having ill will towards other people, that I don't act out, that I don't speak, but in my mind I have them. And ignorance, just like thinking that it's the other guy's problem. It's not my problem, it's his problem. Like, the guy who cut me off in traffic is an a-hole, you know? Like, screw that guy, right? That's basic ignorance. Because it's a matter of my perception. The same, the same, act, the same thing of somebody cutting me off in traffic, the sense data is the same, but the way that I think about it transforms it fundamentally. Because if I recognize that the person cutting me off 
causes a trigger of anger, and then I notice that trigger of anger, and then I apply the antidote to anger, which is patience, not getting angry when provoked, then I realize that the person who cut me off was doing the thing that I needed in order to receive a teaching on patience, which strengthens my virtues, which accelerates my cosmic evolution towards Buddhahood. And just by changing the way that I think about the thing, just by changing the way that I perceive the thing, changes the thing itself. Because it's not an a-hole cutting me off in traffic, nor is it a Buddha from its own side. It's how I perceive it. It's the conceptual overlay that I apply to the sense data that makes the thing what it is. And so, if I want to live in a world of peace and love and joy and bliss, I need to impose that worldview on the sense data. And that's what the vows of morality do. That's why we have vows of ethics. It's they're not thou shalt and thou shalt not, thou shalt not, because there's like super dad who's gonna like wag his finger at you like from the on high or whatever. The point is because it changes our own mind. It changes the way that our mind works. And we have to get really, really good at this because we're not just trying to change the, we think, the way we think about things in our conscious mind, but we're trying to change the way that our unconscious, our subconscious works. And that's what Bodhicitta, the last class, was all about, is like changing your mind so that your instantaneous habitual reaction is compassion and love and forgiveness and joy and happiness and equanimity and other virtues. Because that's, how, that's the only way to change the world. That's the only way to change the world in any meaningful way. And so, that's the extraordinary training in morality. The extraordinary training in meditative concentration, as you can maybe intuit, in order to hold this worldview, whenever I'm provoked, whenever someone's in my face, whenever someone doesn't do the thing that I want them to do, whenever they try to hurt me, or they try to hurt someone I care about, or I'm watching TV news and people are hurting each other on TV news, I need to have extraordinary concentration to be able to hold the worldview of what I need to, how do I shift my perception in order to live in the world that I want to live in? Because it's empty from its own side. It's empty of the, inher it's empty of the characteristics that I habitually see as inherent. It's empty of those characteristics. The characteristics are imposed by my consciousness. They're, from, they're my perspective. They're not the thing. They're my perspective on the thing. And so we have to cultivate morality, and we have to concentrate meditative concentration so that we can hold the morality. And when we do our, you know, we do our meditation practice 15, 20, 40 minutes in the morning, um, we're practicing, you know what I mean? It's like going to the gym and lifting weights so that we are strengthening our meditative concentration, we're strengthening our capacity to hold our... Meditative concentration means being, to put your, being able to put your mind on what you want it to be on and keep it there. And it doesn't fly off the first time that something distracts it. So we're, we're lifting weights in the morning, strengthening our concentration so that we can put our mind where we want it to be and hold it there. And so that we can hold our mind on, our, on, on the on the morality and altruism because that's what generates, that's what speeds up the dynamo of our cosmic evolutionary momentum 
so that we can get to the point that we can kind of punch through our ignorance and get to the point where we have that direct perception of, of ultimate reality. There you go, secret of life. Four results of the Buddhist path. All right, we're just gonna blast through these, more technical stuff. Um, stream enterer, technical term. Stream enterer is a technical term that means that you are within your last seven lifetimes. Seven lifetimes seems like a lot, but uh, on a cosmic timeline, it's very, very little. Stream enterer means you're almost done. So, you know, keep your eye on the prize. Don't, don't get thrown off by, you know, movie theaters and cheeseburgers and Disneyland and Playstations and stuff like that. Because there's a lot of, you know, when you get really good, then life starts to get really good, you know? When you get good at this, like, the sense data gets nicer and nicer, and then you have, like, a lot of good stuff in your life. And they say, and this is in the yogic texts, too, they say that you start to get cities, which are magical powers. I said I was going to blast through this, but I get distracted by yogic cities. Yogic cities are magic powers, like being able to know what's going on on the other side of the world without having to be there. Being able to communicate with people far, far away without having to be face-to-face -face with them. The ability to fly. Do you have any of those cities? I bet you do. And one of the big problems is when you get these awesome cities like iPhones and airports, um, it's very easy to get distracted and then think that the cities are like, I've got the, I got the good shit, I'm done, you know? Like, and then to stop focusing on the extraordinary training of morality and the extraordinary training of meditative concentration. So don't get distracted by your yogic cities. You're almost there. Seven lives or fewer. Once returner means one more lifetime. You're not gonna get enlightened in this lifetime, but you're gonna get enlightened in the next lifetime. So even closer. Non-returner means this is it, the last lifetime. Um, arhat is a Sanskrit, uh, Sanskrit term, uh, means literally foe destroyer. And arhat is one who has attained these states of nirvana, like nirvana with something left over, where they have destroyed the foe of ignorance, they've destroyed the foe of mental afflictions. Um, they still have a physical body. So an arhat is someone who's had the direct perception of emptiness, has returned to their physical body. They have the four Arya truths come to them as true realizations, not as just concepts like I'm blah, blah, blahing at you now, but um, as like a deep understanding, experiential understanding that that's how reality really is. Um, and then it's just a question of like crushing out the, the karmic seeds, the negative karmic seeds of, of uh, perceiving self and other, uh, even though they know that it's wrong, they still kind of have that perception. So that's an arhat. Um, at the bottom here is a meditation assignment. I, uh, we'll do this together um, after a short break. Um, but I encourage you to read the, the page of the handout because it will reinforce and validate everything that I've already said, using a little bit more Tibetan vernacular. Put the daily components of a happy life on your refrigerator or your wherever. Next, you know, tape it to your bedside table so you see it in the morning. And um, spend 15 minutes a day thinking about what it would be like to achieve nirvana, to not have any problems 
to be physically at ease, to live in a world where everybody's happy, where everybody has their needs met, where nobody is mad at each other, everybody's getting along harmoniously, perfectly, easefully, effortlessly. Because you have to visualize the goal. You have to visualize the goal. It's very, very helpful to imagine what the goal would be like in order to get there, you know? It's like you can't achieve a goal that you haven't, that you haven't clearly thought out. And so that's the purpose of this meditation assignment, to um, help to help you develop the extraordinary concentrate, the extraordinary training in meditative concentration, but also to help you along your your cosmic evolution by helping you see that the goal is something attainable.